This episode of Untold Stories, Life with a Severe Autoimmune Condition is brought to you by Argenix, a global immunology company committed to improving the lives of people living with severe autoimmune conditions. At Argenix, we listen to patients, caregivers, and advocacy communities to align their aspirations with our innovations in pursuit of a better tomorrow. We welcome this opportunity to honor our commitment by sharing the untold stories of our guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Untold Stories, Life with Myasthenia Gravis, a podcast from iHeartRadio in partnership with Argenix. I'm your host, Martine Hackett. I'm an associate professor and director of public health programs at Hofstra University. And as a researcher, professor, and public health expert, I've spent my career studying the complex realities of healthcare disparities and the diverse barriers people face. In this podcast, I'll speak with real people living with myasthenia gravis, commonly known as MG, about finding care and community along their MG journey. Every person with MG has a unique story to tell. By exploring what life with MG looks like, we'll expand the conversation around this condition and its disproportionate effect on underserved communities. In each episode, we'll recognize how each MG journey is unique and powerful in its own way. We'll also share experiences with self-advocacy and discuss the role community and caregivers play in the lives of people living with this rare disease. Before I introduce our first guest, I think it's essential to explain exactly what MG is. Myasthenia gravis is a rare autoimmune neuromuscular condition. The name myasthenia gravis literally means serious muscle weakness, which happens to be the main symptom. MG affects the voluntary muscles of the body, especially those that control the eyes, mouth, throat, and limbs, and destroys communication between the nerves and muscles, resulting in weakness. Naturally, with the barriers to proper care and the often long road to diagnosis, MG creates many difficulties navigating everyday life. But fortunately, many have learned to overcome the obstacles MG presents and create full and meaningful lives along the way. Like our first guest, Shauna, Shauna is a former combat medic in the U.S. Army, who after nearly four years of service was medically retired with the onset of her health challenges. After her medical retirement, she pivoted to the arts as a positive outlet, which bloomed into a love of pottery, ceramics, and graphic design. An eternal optimist and true force in the MG community, she helps others through her writing at Myasthenia Gravis News and as an ambassador for the Travis Mills Foundation. Shauna has taken the last few years to balance her creative pursuits and improving her health, sharing her story alongside her caregiver and husband, Justin, in their blog, In Sickness and Nevermind. Hi, Shauna. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Hi, Martine. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to. Let's begin at the beginning. Can you start by telling us how did your MG journey begin? When did you know something was wrong? I am a uh, disabled veteran, and my health journey actually started during my deployment to Iraq. Started having seizures while I was deployed over there. Um, I was exposed to open burn pits and stuff. And anyway, my health continued to decline. About a year later, I was medically retired. I had been experiencing you know, some brain fog and some weird weakness. I was tripping a little bit, but didn't think anything of it. About six months after 
I got out, I started having some significant weakness where I was actually falling, um, and the VA actually gave me a wheelchair. And this is 2012. So I'm 28 years old in a wheelchair, and nobody knows why. But then about four or five months later, I started having dysphagia and was choking on my food. Again, nobody knows why. There's some mild swallow issues, like food would stay stuck in my esophagus before it would go down. Again, Nobody knows why. Here's another pill to kind of, you know, fix it. And then just increased weakness and fatigue. It wasn't until 2016 or 2017 when I started having ptosis or uh, eye drooping on the right side. And I saw my ophthalmologist at the VA. And he's the one that said, I think you've got myasthenia gravis. And then, you know, sent this information to my neurologist. It wasn't until a year later I was hospitalized for a week because I lost 10 pounds because I couldn't eat. I was choking and couldn't keep anything down. And then I finally said, if you don't give me a chest CT, you know, we're going to have issues and I'm going to file a complaint. We did the CT and I had hyperplastic thymus. So I said, okay, you obviously are not being kept up to date with, you know, current research. And I went to patient advocacy, got a referral to an MG specialist in Maine. So long story short, it took a took a hot minute. Well, it seems to me that all along the way that you were obviously advocating for yourself yep. with your healthcare team. What did you find to be sort of the most uh, impactful in terms of getting the care that you actually needed? Probably just sticking to my guns, not being afraid to be the squeaky wheel um, and having to repeat, you know, this is what's going on. This is what I've tried over and over and over again, but also being willing to meet the physicians halfway. So one of the things I had to do with my neurologist to get her to agree to a trial was agree to go see a psychologist who could diagnose whether or not it was PTSD related or what have you. And I saw two different psychologists and counselors who both said, it is legitimate. There is some kind of thing that is physically wrong, whether you know what it is or not. You're just not doing the right tests. Mm. So like you said, you had to sort of meet them with what they were wanted to do to rule other things out. Right. You swallow your pride a little bit, even though you know it's not you know, all in your head. You got to be willing to meet halfway. And that was, I think, the best thing. You mentioned your neurologist. Um, thinking about timing, if you'd seen your neurologist earlier on, how do you think that would have changed your MG journey? That's the thing is I was seeing her already for the seizures because mm. then I was having them on a regular basis. I've been seizure-free for six years now. Mm. So she knew and she did the EMGs and she did the blood tests, but because the tests were negative, she was like, well, there's nothing wrong. She just focused on the seizures. Because that's what she was looking for. Because that's what she was looking for. And, you know, it was, well, all of these tests that I know to do are coming back negative. Okay, but here's the research that I'm presenting to you from the National Institute of Health. It's from, you know, the Neurology Journal, because I still had all of those subscriptions because I was trying to get into med school. So I was showing her, like, this isn't, you know, Google Doc here that I'm giving you. It's mm -hmm. legit stuff. You know, they tell you not to look for a zebra when it should be a herd of horses in, in med school, right? But sometimes you also have to be open to the idea that you're actually trying to find the unicorn in a herd of zebras. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that that fits a lot of us more than the other. And to be open to what the patient is saying, like you said, is happening in your own body. Right. So as your MG progressed, how have you coped with the emotional toll? Because over all these years, my goodness, it just seems like it takes a lot to be able to cope. It does. Uh, Part of it is by being open about my journey um, and finding ways to help others uh, that it turns my pain and, you know, my frustration and everything else makes it a little more bearable. Um, So if sharing my journey through, you know, the different platforms that I share it on helps somebody else, maybe instead of it taking them seven years, it takes them five, then it, it makes it worth it. I have an amazing spouse who supports me. I get regular counseling because there is a grief aspect of it. And I acknowledge that I go through, you know, the various stages of grief, depending on the level of disability. And I have, you know, other things to to keep me occupied, to try and help, help me feel like I've got a purpose. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it seems that you have done that and then some with the ability to um, find your purpose and, like you said, to um, help others. And you mentioned your husband, Justin. Yeah. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with him and how you empower him as your caregiver through this MG journey? Yep. So he's never known me healthy. Um, He's only known me since I got out of the Army. A lot of open communication. It's very much, okay, today's not a good day or today's a great day, but you know, we still have to balance how much I do or how much we do together with you know, what's going to happen on the back end because you know, flare fear is, is very real for both of us because if I push too hard, then he has more work to do as my caregiver. And he is my caregiver through a program at the VA. Uh, he does most of the cooking. Um, He helps me with bathing and all my appointments he'll take me to, most of the, you know, cleaning around the house. And, I mean, he does most everything. But it's, you know, acknowledging the work that he does and letting him know that I appreciate it, finding ways to try and take some of that burden off, even if it means, okay, there's stuff I really want to do, but I'm not going to because he needs a break. (laughs) (laughs) and encouraging him to find his own stuff. Do you think that his role as your caregiver strengthened your relationship? I think it's forced us to really improve our communication, which in turn has strengthened our relationship. Because, you know, there are some really hard topics that we will sit and it's, okay, we need to sit and talk about this and figure out a way to work around it. And without that being the necessity I don't know that we would have gotten to where we are, but we can have those hard conversations and nobody gets offended or it's, okay, well, I get it. I don't like it, but you're right. Or, you know, whatever the case may be. And like you said, the idea that this is all you've known in terms of, you know, your your health status, it yeah. probably sort of set the, the ground rules real early. Yeah. You know, when we first got together, we were, um, I could still walk and- we laid it all out and it's, okay, I've got all these appointments. We don't know what's wrong with me, but I've got this and this and this. And um, 
I have a son from a previous marriage. He's 21 now. But at the time, you know, he didn't live with me because I couldn't even take care of myself. I had to move in with my parents when I got out of the army. So explaining all of that. And then you know, that kind of really set the tone for our relationship because it's, you know, there's no secrets. There's no punches. This is what's what. And, you know, you set the expectation and then it's just been building from there. We'll celebrate 10 years this year in August for awesome. um, our wedding anniversary. That's awesome. You mentioned working with the VA. Are there stereotypes that you think that we have within the Army about not getting help or not seeking care? Yep. I think those are becoming fewer and fewer. But when I first started, most days I had appointments. I was the only female, and I was the youngest by at least a decade. A lot of women don't seek care at the VA because they feel like they're not seen as veterans. And then I think the larger of the stigmas with the VA is the mental health aspect. Now, I think there's not quite as much of one, and people are starting to utilize the VA as it was intended. But there's still a lot of hoops to jump through. And, you know, some of the programs you have to prove your disability. Like with the caregiver program, we have quarterly assessments to prove that I'm still disabled, even though I am rated at 100 total and permanent service connected, which means my disabilities are service connected, and there's no chance of them getting better. You know, they're not going away. Shauna, you mentioned about having to prove a disability with the VA. Could you describe what what does that mean? For me, it's justifying how much help I actually get from my husband. Can I cook for myself? Can I feed myself? Can I bathe myself? Can I dress myself? So we have to go through all of those. And one of the things that they haven't taken into account yet is the variability of organic diseases like myasthenia gravis. You know, if you get me the week after I get my infusions, no, I can dress myself. If you get me the week right before when, you know, stuff has run its course, yeah, sometimes I need a lot of help. You know, he has to help me with the bathing and washing my hair. And it's a really good thing that this is a podcast and not a video show because he doesn't know how to do my makeup. And I don't know that I could hold my arms up enough to do my makeup today. Uh, <laughs> so it's, you know, there's that and it's, okay, well, how many days does a flare last and what does a flare look like? justifying the symptom expression and how frequently it occurs with saying, yes, I do actually need this help in that way. You had mentioned that MG is now considered service-related. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Has the VA determined that some aspects of military service are making vets more vulnerable to conditions like MG? So there are... Um, a lot of different working theories, um, especially for veterans who are deployed overseas in what a lot of people will recognize as the Gulf War area because of the heavy metals mm -hmm. in the environment, but as well as what we're exposed to with open burn pits. Because, you know, there's medical waste gets burned and batteries and plastics and all of the things that you should not burn gets burned and incinerated because mm -hmm. that's the only way to dispose of trash. There is acknowledgement that because of these exposures, it opens you up to a whole host of issues. And we know that a lot of autoimmune disease can be triggered from chemical exposure, heavy metal exposure, toxin exposure, you know, all of these different things. So it just, it makes you more susceptible. 
There are some autoimmune diseases that are recognized as service-connected because of those exposures, but that's also why there is the caveat that your Mm. symptoms have to show within a year of service to prove that it's been service-connected. It depends. And, it you know, if you didn't deploy and you were to develop myasthenia gravis, it probably wouldn't be considered service-connected because you weren't exposed to the things that they believe may have triggered, you know, the development of an autoimmune disease. We'll be back with more Untold Stories, Life with Myasthenia Gravis, after a quick break. As a global immunology company committed to improving the lives of people living with severe autoimmune diseases, Argenix is dedicated to partnering with advocacy organizations, including the Conquer Myasthenia Gravis Association, or Conquer MG, in support of the MG community. Conquer MG has been offering help and hope to individuals with myasthenia gravis in Illinois, Northwest Indiana, and Southeast Wisconsin for more than 50 years. Their mission is to facilitate the timely diagnosis and optimal care of individuals affected by AMG and to improve their lives through patient services, public awareness, medical research, professional education, advocacy, and patient care programs. For more information about ConquerMG, visit www.myastheniagravis.org. And now, back to Untold Stories, Life with Myasthenia Gravis. Shauna, you have a service dog named Andy. And um, how did you get him? Was, did you were able to get him through the VA? No, actually. Um, I got Andy through an organization called Canines on the Frontline in Maine. They match rescue dogs with disabled veterans with PTSD and then put us through a training program together to train him to be um, a service dog. So he helps me with my PTSD as well. And I told them that I knew I'd need a large dog because, you know, MG affects my mobility. So they found Andy, who's a Great Dane and lab mix, and we cross-trained him. So that way he would be uh, my service dog for both the PTSD and the myasthenia gravis. Shauna, how does Andy help you day to day? So I have uh, ropes tied to the doors here in the house, and he helps me close the doors, and he will open them by pushing them open. He knows how to brace, so that way if I need help getting up from a seated position on the couch, I can use him for stability. He picks things up off the floor for me so I don't lose my balance and, you know, topple head over tea kettle. He can close the dishwasher door, the silverware drawers, the cabinets in the kitchen, He will sit there and he'll help brace if I need help, like getting out of the shower. That's one of the reasons he's so big is to have a mobility Mm -hmm. um, service dog. They have to be at least 50% of your weight so that way you don't hurt them when you use them for the mobility work. So he's a big boy at 110 pounds. And (laughs) Okay, yes, thank you, Andy. It's like, you told me to get stuff. I'm getting Uh stuff. He's like, here, you dropped this. You need this, Mom. (laughs) You need your cereal for the morning. (laughs) And then he just, you know, looks at you with these golden brown eyes and says, the world's going to be okay, Mama. It's hard not to feel better when he looks at you like that. Yeah, so he's doing many jobs at once. Yes. (laughs) That's awesome. 
What advice would you have for other female veterans who may be dealing with the VA in regards to a rare disorder diagnosis like MG? You know what's going on with your body. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't. And being able to stick to your guns, but not being hysterical or pushy, being accepting that you might have a little bit of a hurdle to get through to get to where you need to be, but not to give up. Mm. Um, because it's, again, they don't know what they don't know. And if the docs that you are seeing haven't treated a female vet, they're not going to know what services you may or may not need or what health issues are common amongst female veterans when their primary demographic has been 60, 70, 80-year-old men. It may not be you. They just have no idea what you need, and it might take some time for them to figure that out. My primary care, she's like, okay, I have no idea, so we're going to get you to the people that do. And I have more respect for her because she said, I don't know, but we're going to find out. Awesome. Like, that doesn't make me respect you any less as my physician. If anything, it puts you, you know, higher up on my pedestal of where you are as my doc. If there was something that you could tell healthcare providers to help patients with MG feel heard or get the care that they needed sooner, what would you tell them? To listen and look at the whole person. Try to help them figure out how to explain what they're actually feeling like. Because I know, like, with the shortness of breath, that's, you know, a big one because it's just, well, I can't get a good breath. Well, but what does that feel like? You know, because they automatically always go to asthma. Well, does it feel like your chest is tight? No, it just feels like I've got to catch and, like, I can't get a good breath. Finding better ways to explain or to help your patients explain how they're feeling Because a lot of times they just don't know, like, well, I'm tired. Well, but what kind of tired? Because, you know, that physical feeling of being tired when you've exerted yourself too much is much different than that feeling of tired because your muscles just aren't working, you know, Mm -hmm. because of MG. Or what does it look like with, you know, the double vision? If you get double vision, you know, okay, well, do you get double vision? Well, yes, but it looks like this. Or, you know, have more options for people to help them help you. There's a lot of talking past each other. And I think that, you know, the patient gets frustrated because the doctor's not understanding and then the doctor assumes that they know what's going on. And then it just creates this back and forth and frustration because they're talking past each other and not actually hearing what the other is saying. You mentioned earlier about how giving back to others um, that are going through their MG journey is something that has um, given you some strength. Yep. Um, through outlets with your blog and podcast, what have you learned about the experiences of other people's journey to MG diagnosis? That the average diagnosis, even in the private sector, is seven to 10 years, especially for women, which is unfortunate. I've also learned that even though the VA has its own set of red tape and frustrations that I'm exceptionally lucky because I do have the VA care. I get IVIG every three weeks. We moved out here to Wisconsin a year ago and my care team out here is phenomenal. So my neurologist signs off on it and I get my meds and that's it. And I don't have to worry about it. And I know that a lot of my friends in the MG community, it's a struggle to try and get their meds approved. It's obnoxious. 
Shauna, when you think about people who are listening to this podcast, who are living with MG, what advice do you have to give them? This may or may not come across the way that I'm hoping it does. Okay. Um, (laughs) But I am very big on not having a victim mentality. And what I mean by that is, yes, MG really sucks, especially when you are struggling to find that diagnosis, but it doesn't have to define your limitations. It's you can have your bad days and you can do the woe is me and okay, this really sucks. And you have your pity party for a day, but you don't sit there and do the, well, you know, nobody likes me. Nobody understands. Nobody gets it. You know, I don't have any, you know, whatever all of these negative things are, because there's also a lot of really good positives. If you know where to look for them, try to live and not just survive. And that's the biggest one is I just see too many people just sitting and wallowing in that pity party, which doesn't help because stress and all those negative emotions makes the MG worse. So you're just putting yourself in a spiral and that doesn't do anybody any good. I saw a quote in your blog that I want to read back to you. You said, sometimes we have to get out of our own way to live our best lives. Yep. It's true. I owned a print shop in Maine before we moved out here and I had to close it because I had my first myasthenic crisis. I never recovered. Came out here about a year ago and based on what I can do with, you know, most of my good days with MG, I relaunched my web design business, but I have boundaries set so that way I don't go back to where I was. So just because you can't do what you used to do doesn't mean that you still can't do other stuff. And it's also about living in the past, right? Your past self and how you viewed yourself. And you can't keep holding that image. You're different. Things have changed. And when you get out of your own way and focus on what you can do, you never know, you know, what that path is going to look like. Is there anything you hope to tell the MG community as a whole? There's things that we can do for ourselves, whether we're getting the care that we need or deserve. There's other things that we can be doing for ourselves so that we can live our best lives within our capabilities. You just have to be willing to look on that side of the coin and not, you know, kind of sit there and only see the negative. Once you get a diagnosis with a rare disease um, like MG, it's the you that you are now is what you need to focus on instead of the you that you were before. Because focusing on before is just going to keep you in a depressive state, and that's just not good for anybody. So well said, Shauna. With that, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you. It was really great being able to listen to Shauna and hear about her experiences and to meet her dog, Andy. But I'll say it's all too common to hear about the barriers to care for people living with MG. So whether making your voice heard or helping advocate for someone you love, honest conversations with your healthcare provider are key to finding the right treatment plan for you and feeling empowered along the way. Don't forget to join us every other week to hear more powerful stories of life with MG. 
Untold Stories, Life with Myasthenia Gravis was produced by iHeartRadio in partnership with Argenix and Closer Look and hosted by me, Martine Hackett. Our executive producer is Molly Sosha. Our EP of post-production is Matt Stillo. And our producer is Sierra Kaiser. This episode was written and produced by Tyree Rush. 